Amen. Praise God. Praise God. All right, folks, are you ready for the word? All right. Now, tonight's message, A Love That Transforms, is a very beautiful topic. It's a message that we share at every single evangelistic seminar that we do, and uh, this one is definitely no exception to that. But I just have to say that tonight's topic is a little bit uncomfortable, and so I need your prayers. Would you pray for me? (laughs) Just through the message um, that you'd ask the Lord in your own heart and mind, Lord, give him the words to speak. Give him courage to share the truth as is found in the word. I really covet your prayers tonight. I need prayer for sure, for wisdom. And then the second thing, pray for yourself that God will all give us a teachable spirit, amen, to receive the word, even though it's uncomfortable. It's not shocking. Last night was shocking. It's not difficult. Saturday night was difficult. Tonight is a little bit uncomfortable uh, for me and maybe for you as well. And so, uh, but as we pray for the Spirit of God, He will lead us into a deeper understanding of truth, amen? So why don't we pray as we begin tonight? Lord, thank you so much for the truth of your word that makes us free. We thank you, Lord, that your word, the Bible, is not just a book that reveals who you are, but it also reveals your will for us and how we can live the best life, a life of joy and happiness. We thank you, Lord, that your word gives us practical instructions on how to live. And Lord, tonight as we deal with some of those things, help us to see your love even in this uncomfortable message to realize that you're a God that is only trying to protect us from the evil results of sin and that you never take away anything from us without replacing it with something that is far better. And so, Lord, please give us a teachable spirit, and I pray, Lord, that you'll speak directly to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A love that transforms. Friends, let me ask you a question. How many of you love the Lord Jesus? Amen. I believe that you mean that with all your heart, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And uh, we love him, the Bible says, because he first loved us. In other words, naturally, it's impossible for the human heart to really love God. We don't have it in us, friends. Our love for God is simply a response to his love for us. And when we truly understand the depth the height, the width, and the breadth of God's love for us and how it's everlasting and infinite and so profound. That love, friends, has the power to change our lives forever. Love awakens a love response in our hearts. And because of his love for us, we love him as well. Amen? But let me tell you, friends, our love for Jesus is going to be tested in this message. Tonight's message is is an unpopular message. It sometimes cuts people, and that's the nature of truth, friends. The Word of God, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, is, is like a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. And, it, and sometimes the, the cutting of truth hurts, but it hurts only to heal. You see, God does not use His Word of truth like a butcher does to kill. A butcher uses a sword to kill. God uses his word more like a surgeon uses the knife. He cuts to bring healing. And so that's the motivation of God, friends. Whenever he brings to us a cutting or a challenging message, it's only because he loves us. 
and he's trying to cut away the cancer of sin and deception from our lives. And so if that's the motivation of God in cutting us with truth, is, is, is that he just wants to save us. If that's God's motive, then I don't know about you, but I want to say to God tonight, Lord, cut me all you want. Amen. <laughs> that I might be saved by your word of truth. You see, friends, the love of God is demonstrated not only in meekness and kindness and mercy, but it's also demonstrated in strong warning and rebuke. We read this last night in Revelation 3 and verse 19. Jesus said, as many as I what? Love, I do what? Rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You see, the chastening or the correction or the discipline or the rebuking of God comes never out of anger or frustration, but only out of love for us. And that love accepts us just as we are, no matter what condition we are in. How many of you are thankful for that? The love of God accepts us just as we are, but that same love never leaves us as we are. The love brings rebuke and correction to our lives, and it brings about a transformation in our hearts. The Bible tells us that when the Lord sends rebuke out of love, he calls us to repent. And do you remember what the word repent means? In the Greek, it's the word mataneo, which means to change your mind or to change your way of thinking. And so God brings truth in love, and sometimes it cuts, but it also calls for repentance to change our way of thinking because, friends, think about it. It is our mind that produces our thoughts and feelings. Thoughts and feelings produce words and actions. Words and actions form habits. Habits make up your character, and your character is what determines your destiny. But it all starts back in the mind. The mind is the root, the lifestyle, and the destiny is the fruit. Did you catch that? The mind is the root, and the lifestyle and the destiny is the fruit of whatever is rooted in the mind. And that's the reason why the Bible says in Isaiah 1:18, "Come now and let us do what? Reason together." You see, God wants us to reason, to use our minds to engage our thinking, and this is what brings transformation in our lives. In Romans chapter 12 verse 2, the Bible says, "And be not conformed to this world, but be ye what's the word? Transformed by how? The renewing of your mind." that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, friends, in order for us to be transformed, we have to be renewed in the mind. The mind is the root. The lifestyle is the fruit. Therefore, a transformed life begins with a renewing of the mind. And when our minds are renewed, we're transformed, and we will prove, we will do the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. That will be fulfilled in our lives. And so today, we're going to study about a group that has been transformed by the love of God. The final generation, those in the last days who will live to see the coming of Christ with their own eyes. Who are they and how do they live? The Bible describes them in Revelation chapter 7. So turn your Bible now to Revelation. We're going to go to the 7th chapter where we read God's final generation of the last day. <clears throat> Revelation what chapter? Now, we looked at this last night a little bit. I want to look at another angle of it tonight. And 
Right now, we're just laying the foundation. We're about to get into some very practical stuff tonight. But first, let's lay the foundation. Revelation 7, beginning with verse 1. This, what we're about to read, is the close of probation that will happen just before Jesus returns. And notice what it says. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says, And after these things I saw four angels, <coughs> excuse me, standing on the four corners of the earth, holding, what were they holding? The four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. He cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have done what? <coughs> Sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So we find in prophetic language four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they're holding back the four winds from blowing on the earth. Once those winds are let go, the earth is going to be catapulted in a great time of tribulation, a great time of trouble, because wind in the Bible represents strife and war, desolation and destruction. We looked at that the other night. Proverbs 1:27 is the reference, if you're interested in that. The winds represent desolation and destruction. And so these angels holding back the winds are basically holding back the great time of trouble. The time that this world is going to be destroyed, that great tribulationary period of the last days, they're holding it back, and they're not going to let it go until something happens. Until what happens? Until God's servants are sealed in their foreheads. And the reason why, as we mentioned last night, is because only those who have the seal of God in their foreheads are going to be preserved when the winds are let loose and when destruction and desolation and trouble and tribulation break loose upon planet Earth. We learned that a seal is a sign that, that it's been preserved. A, a jar or a can of food in the grocery store has a seal. It's the seal, the purpose of it is to preserve, and so too the only ones that are going to be preserved when the winds of strife and destruction are let loose are those who have God's seal in their foreheads. And remember, it's not a literal mark or seal, but the forehead represents the mind. The forehead is where the frontal lobe of your brain is. That's the cerebral cortex. It's where you make your decisions. It's where your belief system is. And so God wants to fortify our minds with the seal of God so that when trouble comes, we're not going to fold. We're not going to be spoiled, but we're going to stand firm for the Lord Jesus all the way to the end. Like Jesus said, he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And friends, let me just give a quick word again on this idea of tribulation. Many people think the church is going to be raptured before tribulation comes, but the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Every time you find the word tribulation in the New Testament, it's always in the context of Paul or the people of God being in tribulation, but they're preserved in it. God has given them protection and, and endurance to get through it. Every time, friends, the church is not going to be raptured out of it. The, the church is going to go through it, but they're going to be preserved in it just like Noah was preserved during the time of the flood. Just like the three Hebrew boys went in the fire, but they were preserved in that fire. They were not hurt by that fire because Jesus was with them in the fire. So too, when the winds of tribulation are let loose, the church will go through it, but they're going to be preserved in it 
because they have the seal of the living God. Friends, I want the seal of God. How about you? Notice the characteristic of those to receive the seal. It says that they are servants of God. If we are going to have the seal, we first must be a servant. And the Bible tells us that we're all servants, and a servant has a master. Either we're serving ourselves or Satan, or we're serving God. The Bible says no man can serve two masters. And if we are going to be sealed, God must be our master. We must be his servant, which shows something very interesting about this final generation of the last days. They are servants of God. They're not servants of themselves. They're not putting their own will, their own ideas, and their own desires first. They put the will of their master first. That's the characteristic of a servant, friends, is that they do not their own will, they do the will of their master. Friends, if we're going to be saved, Jesus Christ must not only be our Savior, He also has to be the Lord of our lives. Can you say amen? The reason why I emphasize that is because everyone wants a Savior, but hardly anyone wants a Lord. But Christ must be both Savior and Lord in order for us to be saved. He must be our master, and he's a good master. Can you say amen? He's a merciful master, a king of kindness. And so the, those who are sealed accept Jesus as the Lord and master of their life. Keep that in mind as we continue. Where do they come from? Verse 4, the next verse tells us, and I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed how much? 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And so the Bible gives a specific number, 144,000, and it says that they come from the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, who is this final generation, this 144,000? Who are the Israelites of the last days? Well, friends, remember we studied this very clearly before. We had a whole night on it that Israel in New Testament are not literal national Israelites. They're in the Middle East and scattered throughout the world. But Israel in Revelation is symbolic, representing the people of God or the New Testament church. Revelation is a symbolic book, friends. The very nature of it is symbolic, and many Christians are reading it with literal eyes, and they're missing the symbolic uh, meaning uh, that's behind the message. We learn very clearly, according to New Testament theology, that those who belong to Christ, Christians, in other words, are become the Israel of God. In Galatians 3, 28, 29, we review. The Bible says there is neither what? Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all, are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are who? Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When we belong to Christ, there's no such thing as Jew and Gentile or Jew and Greek. We become Abraham's seed. That means we become Israel, not literal Israel, but spiritual Israel. And that's the identity of these Israelites in Revelation chapter 7. It says they come from the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. It's referring to a spiritual Israel, the people of God, a special group from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Those who've experienced a love that has changed and transformed their life, just like Jacob, was, his name was changed to Israel when he had an encounter with the Lord. So too, this final generation, they've had an encounter with the Lord, and God has changed their names as well, their character, their reputation, and their lifestyle. They've experienced a love that has transformed their lives. 
Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what about that number 144,000? That seems like a very small number. I don't, have, I don't think I stand a chance if that's literal. Well, friends, people argue many times whether or not the number is literal or symbolic. And, our friends, I believe that the character of this people is what is most important, not so much whether the number is literal or symbolic. But let me just say that I believe that this is a literal group of people, but the number is symbolic. And the reason why is because everything else is symbolic. A literal group, but a symbolic number. And I have to give you a biblical reason why I believe that. And the reason is this, because Revelation is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament. And to understand why God would place a number on his end-time Israelites, we, ask, we have to ask, well, why did God number his Old Testament Israelites? And when you go to Numbers chapter 1 and verse 3, you find that God numbered national Israel for war. For what? Numbers 1-3. They were numbered for war. And so in Revelation, spiritual Israel has, has a specific number. Why? Because they too are warriors for the Lord. They do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Uh, the, the, the warfare that they're engaged in is a spiritual battle. and They do not fight with guns and weapons and swords, but rather they fight with the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. They are soldiers of the cross, and they have declared war against the kingdom of darkness, and they have committed themselves to building up the kingdom of light, and they do it by preaching the gospel, friends. And by doing so, they are rescuing souls from Satan's kingdom. They are not pew armors. They're soul winners. They're not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to be a spiritual warrior, don't you? Amen? And that's who this special group in the last days are. They lead people, to, they, they, they bring people to, to Christ. They conquer people with the love of Jesus. And notice another characteristic of the 144,000, this final generation. Revelation 14, 4 tells us, these are they which do what? Follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. Wherever Jesus goes, these individuals follow him. Not just in the big things, but even in the small things. They, they are faithful to the Lamb. They follow the Lord Jesus. They love Jesus, and they love to follow Him wherever, whithersoever He goes. And I want to be a part of that group, don't you, friends? To follow Jesus in all things, that's what true discipleship is all about. Notice what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. And He said to them, all, if any man will come after me, let him do what? deny himself and take up his cross how often daily and follow me so friends listen we're we we're, we're now getting more specific what it means to follow the lamb wherever he goes to follow the lamb wherever he goes requires for us to deny self how often do you know why daily because there's no such thing as once saved always saved in the bible Daily, it's a daily walk, friends. Jesus said, he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. And daily we must deny self. Why? Because daily self wants to rise up. Every morning you wake up, self wants to wake up. So it requires for us to deny self, our own carnal desires, our own selfish agendas must be denied and we must take up the cross and follow Jesus. You see, friends, whenever God's will crosses or goes against our will, someone has to die. 
Whenever God's will goes against your will, that's a cross and someone has to die. And it's either you're going to crucify Jesus, let him die so that self can live and do what you want to do, or you're going to say, no, Lord, you already died for me. You died, you died once and for all, so Lord, I don't want to put you on the cross again. Lord, may self die on the cross so that you can live in my life. That's what true discipleship looks like. Can you say amen? It's not lip service. It's not head knowledge, but it's a hard experience of dying to self and living to Christ. It requires self-denial every day. And then in Luke 14, Jesus said, so likewise, whoever he be of you that forsakes not how much all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. That's very emphatic. Jesus said if we want to be the disciple or a follower of him, to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, we have to be willing to forsake all. If we're not willing to forsake all, it's impossible. We cannot be a disciple of Jesus. And so, I want to be a disciple, amen? Because he's a good master. He's a merciful master. He's one that has our best interest in mind. He will never ask us to do something that will, that, that will harm us. Everything he asks us from us is for our own good, our own blessing, our own happiness and satisfaction and joy. And so we can be his servants. But we have to be willing to forsake all and trust that he knows best and that his way is best. In other words, friends, full surrender is the test of true discipleship. And this final generation that we're studying about in Revelation, they have experienced that full surrender. They're willing to serve God and follow Him, not just in the big things, but even the small things. They're willing to surrender to God, not just the big things, but even the small things. And these, the final generation, are willing to make a lifestyle change. Oh, what kind of change? And why are they so willing to make a lifestyle change? Is because these servants understand that the master made a lifestyle change for them. And a servant is not greater than the master. And Jesus made that change, friends. Oh, what a change it was. Leaving the glories of heaven. Stepping down from his exalted throne to be born in a barn, in a manger, to grow up in poverty, and then to die a cruel death on the cross for his servants. What kind of king would die for his servants? The king of kings would, because he's a king of kindness. He laid aside his royal scepter and instead took some rusty nails. He took off his golden throne of glory so that he could wear our crown of thorns. Stepped off the throne to hang on our cross. And by his stripes we are healed. This is what Jesus did for you, friends. And it was love that compelled him. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down freely. It was voluntary, friends. He didn't have to do it. But he did it because love. Love for you and love for me. Despite all that we have done to cause him pain, Jesus loved us to death. Oh, are you thankful for Christ tonight? And when we understand the depth of his love, remember, we love him because he first loved us. And when we, when we understand this love, it awakens a love response, and that love transforms us. Listen, listen, the love accepts us just as we are 
but it will not leave us as we are. It will make a difference in our lives on the inside, and that inward difference of the heart will be reflected on the outside in the life. In other words, the life will bear fruit. There will be, there will be a difference in the root of our mind, and that difference in the renewing of our mind will bear a transformation in our lifestyle, the way that we live. And so the final generation, they understand this love perhaps more than any other generation. They've experienced it, friends, and it has made a difference. And as a result, they surrender all to Him. And their surrender is a reflection of His surrender. And if we don't see or understand the depth of His surrender, then we're not going to give all. But when we understand just how much He gave, we're not going to hold anything back from Him who gave all for us. Can you say amen? Now, friends, do not forget this foundational platform as we go into some specific details and principles that God has given us in His Word that show us how to live. Remember that it is all a response of love, love that God has for us, and as a result, the love we show back to Him. Now, friends, notice what the end-time Israelites are called. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a what kind of people? Peculiar people. So notice, God is calling us to be royal, to be holy. Uh, royal means we're not common. We're we are children of the king. And that makes us princes and princesses. And you know, there's a different standard for royalty than there is for the common folk. Isn't that right? And that's what God is calling us as a church, as end-time Israel to be. We are royal. There's a higher standard, friends, for those who are royal. A higher standard for us than there is for those who are living in the world. We are royal. We're to be holy. And we're to be peculiar. And that word peculiar means different. Different from the world. Distinctive. Distinguishable. And why is God calling us to be such? It continues. That you should, what is this word right here? Not just speak forth with your lip service, but that you should show forth visibly by the way you live your life. In other words, when people look at you, they ought to be able to see something even in your outward demeanor and appearance that shows that you're different, peculiar, and royal that you should show forth the praises of him who had called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So God is calling us to be the light bearers in this dark world. He's calling us to be peculiar. It doesn't mean weird. It means different, distinctive, and distinguishable. And we will show it in the way that we live. We will be reflectors of the glorious light of the character of God and the standards of his word. And by the way, friends, when Peter applied this to the New Testament church, New Testament Israel, he was actually quoting from Exodus 19.5. These are the same words God said to the literal nation of Israel, but now those words are applied to the New Testament church because we are spiritual Israel in the last days. Does that make sense? And so how many of you want to be God's peculiar people? Do you want to be his, his, his royal priesthood? Amen? Now, what does it take? to be a reflector of his light. Notice another principle. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, write it down. The Bible says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. Notice, by beholding 
the glory of the Lord are what? Change into the same image from glory to glory. That means it's a process. There's growth involved. We don't are, are not all of a sudden transformed and perfect overnight. No, friends. We, we stumble and fall. We get back up from glory to glory. But as we continue to behold, we're changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so notice this fundamental principle. This is, by the way, universal principle. And the, the principle goes like this. By beholding, you become change. Can you see that? By beholding, you become change. And that applies to whatever you're beholding. It's the law of cause and effect. When you behold something, think about something, talk about something, look at something, listen to something, you become just like that. Our parents used to like to say, birds of the same feather flock together. And why is that the case? Because we reflect whatever we behold or surround ourselves with. But we want to behold the glory of God. Amen? And as we do so, we will be changed into that same image as we behold the love of God and the character of God and the standards and principles of God, we will become changed. And so whatever comes through our eyes, our ears, that affects our mind, we will become just like that. Does that make sense? And for this reason, God in His Word has given us some very practical principles for us to guard our mind because remember the mind is the root the lifestyle and the destiny is the fruit okay so now with that sound theological foundation what are some of these things that God has given to us in love to protect our minds from being like the world and to help us to be more like him Notice these principles. Now we're getting practical. Are you ready for this? Are you sure? All right, let's go. Psalms 101.3, it says, I will set no wicked thing before mine what? The Bible tells us that we should not set anything wicked before our eyes. We should not behold or watch wickedness. Why? Because again, by beholding, we become change. In other words, what God is saying in this passage, he's saying this, be careful, little eyes, what you see. That doesn't just apply to the little children. It also applies to the bigger little children too, amen? Unfortunately, friends, there's something in almost every single home on earth that pours out wickedness. It's called the television set. And that's why the Bible says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes, Amen? Now, friends, listen, listen. There's nothing evil, inherently evil in, with a screen. I have a screen in my house. I got, a, I got a screen in my house. Nothing inherently evil with the TV itself, but what is evil is what it pours out through your eyes and into your mind, and you're the one that controls what programs come on, or maybe does it control you? For some people, they don't control the TV. The TV controls them. They're addicted to it. You see, friends, we need to be careful what we watch. That's the point, especially when Hollywood has no regard for God. Uh, Hollywood, those who put out the movies and the media and the, these TV shows, over 90% don't attend church. Over 95% think homosexuality is okay. Over 84% think that adultery is okay. And I wonder why there's so much filth 
and lust and sex and violence on the TV. And to be honest, friends, there's hardly anything good to watch on television today. It's gotten so worse since when TV first began. I mean, for those who are long enough, here long enough, you remember that when TV first came out, the shows were so innocent. Whenever, some of you remember this, whenever they had a bedroom scene, a bedroom scene, they would have the wife in one bed and the husband in a totally separate bed. Do you remember that? In separate beds, just avoiding any kind of connotation, just separate beds. But as time went on, they started putting husband and wife in the same bed. And do you know who the first married couple on national television that was pictured in the same bed? It was Fred and Wilma Flintstone. (laughs) But nowadays, they would hardly ever have a married couple in the same bed. It's almost always an unmarried couple in the same bed. And the Bible calls that a sin. It is breaking the law of God. And as we behold it, as we watch it, we become desensitized thinking that it's okay. How can we be entertained by something that put Jesus on the cross? And as a result of beholding, we become changed. And what happens? Marriages, over 50% end in divorce. Broken homes, broken families, dysfunctional lives, because we're watching it on television and we're acting it out in our own lives. We watch violence and and killing and murders, and as a result, we become change where we find kids, killing kids with these violent video games and the movies and whatnot. Parents, God holds you responsible for what you allow your children to watch, and not just TV, but on the internet and, and movies and books and magazines. God will hold you responsible. Now, remember, it's not evil in and of itself. There are many good programs, but some people can't handle having cable in their house. I, myself, am one of them because I find myself watching something good and wholesome, you know, some, you know, documentary or educational, you know, something about animals or nature or history, and I start to flip through the channels, and before you know it, an hour goes by, two hours, three, four, five, and you just get sucked in. And what happens is your brain turns into mush because you're letting the media do all the thinking for you. And no wonder why we are so weak-minded and fall asleep in church. Because church is the place where we are supposed to engage our mind. Come now, let us reason together. But when we're accustomed to letting the TV doing all the thinking, no wonder why we think church is boring. The problem is not with church. The problem is with your mind being desensitized. This is not too hard, is it? <laughs> and so let me give you a good piece of advice. If you can't handle it, cut it off. I, don't, I have a screen in my home, but I, I, can't have, I can't handle cable. No cable at all. I, I just can't handle it. I know myself. And so if you can't handle it, cut it off. Like what Jesus said, notice. In Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Pluck it out, Jesus says. Cut it off. It's better to be saved without it than to be lost with it. And so if we cut it off, especially if you have children, I highly recommend that. That's between you and the Lord if you can handle it between you and God, but if you can't, cut it off. And when you do that, replace it with something good. Like some Bible sermons, amen? 
like the Revelation of Hope Bible Prophecy Seminar. How about, how about that? <laughs> Psalms 119.37, Turn mine eyes away from beholding vanity and quicken me in thy way. And God will give us the victory. Amen? Now, friends, back to the question I started with. Do you love Jesus? Oh, are you sure? Is Jesus more important than the media and TV and movies? And so we can make a surrender to him of those things that are not pleasing tonight. Amen? We need to get off the couch and out of the house and start living our own lives. Instead of beholding man, we need to behold the lamb. Now notice another thing Christ warns us of. Are you ready for more? Oh, some of you don't sound like you're ready for more. <laughs> are you ready for more? Well, here it comes whether you like it or not. <laughs> Mark 4, 24, Jesus said, take heed what you hear. Again, God is saying, be careful, little ears, what you hear. He's wanting us to guard the avenues to the mind. And friends, what comes to our ears that can, ha that can have a heavy influence on how we think, believe, and act? Music, of course. Now, friends, music is a gift from God. Can you say amen? But for every true gift, there's a counterfeit. Satan has corrupted music today. And friends, music has come a long way. Hey, some of you heard me say this before. Music has come a long way since Frank Sinatra sang Strangers in the Night and since the Beatles sang I Want to Hold Your Hand. Because now they want to hold a lot more than the hand. Isn't that right? And so any music that glorifies violence and lust and sex and sin is unfit for Christian ears, unfit for minds who are preparing to receive the seal of God. Music molds the mind. Think it through. If a 30-second commercial can influence what type of sh shampoo you use, what about a three-and-a-half-minute song and how that can influence the way you think and believe and behave? And not only that, but the wrong types of music destroys the frontal lobe of your brain. Science has shown that the, the wrong types of music destroys the frontal lobe and it excites the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus, that's the organ in the brain that is easily excited by carnality, by lust, and by the flesh. Syncopated dance rhythms can alter a person's mood, creating a mild hypnosis. It can alter your pulse and your breath rate and your re reflexes and bypass your reasoning powers. The music of the world, friends, distracts us and deceives us from the danger that we're in. And worst of all, it deafens us and desensitizes us to the still, small voice of God's Holy Spirit speaking to us. Rock and roll and rap and R&B and reggae and hip-hop and dance, these types of musics that glorify the world are, are unfit for minds who are preparing to receive God's seal. Those who are serious about the Lord and making Him our master will live by this biblical principle. In Philippians 4, 8, the Bible says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are what? True. Whatsoever things are noble. Whatsoever things are just. Whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are lovely. Whatsoever things are of good report. If there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things. And so this is the standard by which we must test the types of music that we listen to and the types of things that we see. Does it draw us closer to Jesus? Does it help us to think about spiritual things or does it drive us farther away from Jesus? Would Jesus feel comfortable listening to, to the message of this song? And friends, when Christ reigns in the heart, he teaches us to sing a new song. In the book of Psalms 
40, in verse 3, it says, And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. And friends, the song of heaven is a lot different from the song of the flesh, the song of this world. And so, friends, when it comes to the things that we listen to, we need to be careful what comes to our ears. Can you say amen? And friends, I had a struggle with this because before I came to Christ, I had an extensive CD collection. I used to listen to all kinds of music that glorifies the world. And, and, and when I was uh, coming to the seminar, and that was one of the things Satan was telling me. If you give your heart to Jesus, you, what, what about all this music? How, you, you can't give this up. But I realized that, wow, heaven is a lot more valuable than holding on to those things. And so I made a decision to let all of those music, I had a big CD collection, I threw all of that in the garbage. I didn't give it away for someone else to corrupt their mind. I threw it where it belonged, in the trash, friends, because it was trashing my mind. And God gave me the victory, and he replaced it with something better, like uh, something, uh, music that, that uplifts my soul, like Hope Montana, amen? And the revelation of Hope Singers, heavenly music. And so back to the question, do you still love Jesus? Amen. Is Jesus more important than the music of this world to you? Amen. And because he surrendered all for us, let's surrender this area of our life to him as well. Let's allow him to be the Lord and master of the things that we watch and the things that we listen to. Now I want you to notice another practical principle. Remember, why, why is God giving this to us? He's trying to protect our minds from the evil influences of the world because our mind is the root, the life, and the destiny is the fruit. So notice this one. This is a very challenging verse. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, write it down. The Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, then it lists three cardinal lusts of the world or, or, or sins of the world. It says, The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So the Bible is telling us here that if we love the world and claim to love God, we don't really love God. Because if we truly love God, we will hate the things of this world, the things that cause God so much pain. And the three things God warns us of is the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. And so how can we as Christians practically guard against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Well, here's another principle God gives to us to help us to help guard us from the lust of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life. The Bible gives us a principle in the New Testament, in 1, Peter, excuse me, 1 Timothy 2.9, that we need to adorn ourselves in what kind of apparel? Modest apparel. Now, friends, I know that this might sound old-fashioned in our postmodern world, but this is a biblical principle. The Bible tells us that as Christians, we ought to dress modestly. And that word modest means not attracting attention to yourself. As Christians, attention must be placed upon Jesus, not upon self. And so God has claims on our outward appearance as Christians, even though society and the world is totally against this. As one professor of New York's Parsons School of Design said in describing society today and the dress of the world, she said that nothing is kept private. It reflects society. No one has any reserve anymore. It's all about showing what? Showing everything. You see, the world and Hollywood are not trying to find ways to cover up the flesh. They're trying to find more and more ways to expose the flesh. 
It's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And friends, when we behold it on TV and movies, and we try to look like them and dress like them, as a result, what happens? We become desensitized, and as a result, we find that even in the church, dresses are getting higher and higher and higher and blouses tighter and tighter and tighter. Listen, friends, God does not want us to dress in order to raise the blood pressure of the opposite sex. Can you say amen? <laughs> and sisters, sisters, oh, let me tell you, sisters, help us out. You see, God has created us males. The male brain is easily excited by what we see. And so you can help us get to heaven a whole lot easier. <laughs> You're, you are your brother's keeper, ladies. Amen? <laughs> and so help us out. Dress modestly. Modesty is, uh, modest is hottest. Amen? Modest is hottest. And you can help us out. And brothers, works the same both ways. We need to help the sisters out too, brothers, by treating them with dignity and respect as daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Not an object to fulfill our own lusts. But some ladies say, they don't have to look. If you don't like it, don't look. And it's true, brothers, we don't got to look. God can help us turn the other way. But sisters, you don't have to provoke a look. <laughs> God can give all of us victory over the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes in looking, but he can also give us victory in the pride of life in provoking a look as well. Amen? Now, friends, listen, when it comes to lifestyle issues, as far as dress and outward demeanor, when it comes to these types of issues that some people downplay and think is not really important, what is the attitude of the person that truly loves God? Here's the attitude. Ephesians 5, 9, and 10. The Bible tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, and others, the evidence that the Spirit of God is working in us, the fruit of the Spirit, consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then notice, trying to learn what is what? pleasing to the Lord. In other words, the attitude of a truly converted Christian that is being led by the Spirit, their attitude, friends, is that they're, they're going to want to learn, continually learn what pleases the Lord. A healthy relationship is when both parties are always looking out for the happiness of the other person instead of themselves. This is the nature of true love. True, genuine, agape love is not self-centered, but it is other-centered. A healthy relationship is when two parties are constantly looking out for the happiness of the other person instead of their own happiness or themselves. It is other-centered, and love will compel us to go the extra mile to make the other person happy. And my constant prayer in my home is that God would make me a better husband. I'm praying that all the time. Lord, make me a better husband to my wife. As a husband, I want to learn what is pleasing to my wife. I want to please her. And I want to constantly learn what makes her happy. Because when she's happy, I'm happy. Happy wife, happy life. Amen? <laughs> and so in my daily interactions with my wife, listen, listen. In my daily interactions with, with my wife, I study her to see what makes her happy. And sometimes during special occasions, my wife might throw out some hints or small indications as to what she would like for, her an for our anniversary or for her birthday. Now, she doesn't have to threaten me and tell me, you better get me that, you better buy me this, you better do this. She doesn't have to threaten me 
And, and, and nor does she even have to ask me many times. And because, friends, when I'm in tune with my wife, the hints that she gives to me are clear enough for me to know what will make her happy. And so when I do something without her asking me, it reveals my love for her more profoundly than if she asked me and I did it after she asked. Does that make sense? Ladies, you know that, right? When your husband does something that, that, that you're throwing hints or, or he does something that, 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 that you like and you didn't have to ask him or tell him, oh, you get so happy, right? It communicates that to my wife that I'm listening not just with my ears, but I'm listening to her with my eyes and with my heart as well. My love for my wife compels me to go out of my way to do things that will please her and make her happy. Not just being faithful to her. I mean, that's, that's easy. I mean, that's, that's our marital vow, and it's more than just being faithful to her, but going the extra mile to do the little things that actually communicate that I love her, I'm listening to her, not just with my ears, but with my heart as well. This is true in any relationship. Parents, you like it when your children do something and you don't have to tell them to do it? They took the initiative and they did it to make you happy? This is true also in our relationship with our heavenly husband, God himself. In other words, the attitude is that we're going to constantly try to find out, to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We're not going to aim for the lowest standard. Our attitude is not going to be, Lord, what can I hold on to of this world and still make it to heaven? But our attitude is going to be perfect conformity to God's will. And God doesn't always have to tell us clearly what his will is, even as he gives us little hints or little indicators in his word, if we are in tune with him and in tune with the Holy Spirit, we will pick up these little hints and indications in his word that reveals to us what is pleasing to him. And our love for God will compel us to go the extra mile. Can you say amen? That's the attitude of one that has truly experienced a love that transformed. God doesn't have to threaten us and say, you better obey or else. And God, many times, doesn't even have to ask us very clearly, just the little hints. If we're in tune, we'll pick it up and say, oh, Lord, if this is a hint that this is something that will make you happy, Lord, I want to do it because I want to please you and not myself. How many of you want to have that experience more deeply? Amen? And so with that in mind, with that in mind, let us now answer the question that many have asked while we're on the topic of outward, uh, 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 outward apparel and the principle of modesty. Many people have asked the question, well, what does the Bible teach about wearing jewelry? Well, friends, that kind of depends on who you ask. Because if you ask Mr. T, Mr. T says he's a Christian. If you ask Mr. T, he will tell you, I believe in the golden rule. Jesus talked about the golden rule in his interpretation of the verse. He says, he who wears the most gold rules. <laughs> We're not interested in what Mr. T has to say. We want to find out what the Bible has to say, amen? <clears throat> and so what does the Bible say about wearing jewelry and how much is too much? <clears throat> is the adorning of the body pleasing to God? Notice what the New Testament teaching is concerning the wearing of jewelry and superfluous adornments. Again, 1 Timothy 2.9, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, and then it gives some specifics. Not with broidered hair. Broidered hair is when they weaved all kind of gold and chains and precious stones in the hair. So it doesn't mean, ladies, you can't have a nice hair, hairstyle. 
But the broided hair dealt with the, uh, that practice that they did back then, of putting the, the gold in the chains. Not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. And so here we find that modesty, according to this passage, also includes the laying aside of gold and pearls, costly array. Why is this? Because it's the pride of life that God is trying to protect us from. Attracting attention to self. And friends, when you study history, you'll find that the wearing of adornments was a heathenistic pagan practice. And so as we go through some of the scriptures tonight, please don't feel attacked or embarrassed. If you're wearing jewelry tonight, just have an open mind and let's notice the hints that God gives to us in his word concerning the issue of adornments. And I'm not attacking anyone. Friends, I do this seminar, I do this presentation in every single seminar wherever I go, so it's nothing personal on anyone tonight. Genesis 35, verse 2, it says, Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. Here we find that God was calling Jacob, the household of Jacob, his chosen people, to meet him at Bethel. The word Bethel means house of God. And so God was calling Jacob to meet him at the house of God. And in preparation to meet God, the household of Jacob removed the strange gods that were among them, and they changed their garments. Now, what were some of these strange gods? Notice verse 4. It says, And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their what? Earrings which were in their ears. And so we find that the, the, the wearing of earrings was connected with the strange gods that they put aside and they surrendered in preparation to meet God. In fact, friends, this practice of wearing earrings or superfluous adornments was a clear characteristic of not the people of God, but the enemies of God, the heathen. It says in Judges chapter 8 and verse 24, they had golden earrings because they were who? They were Ishmaelites, not Israelites, Ishmaelites. And so we find in this passage that the Ishmaelites were known for wearing, for wearing jewelry. But God called his people Israel to be peculiar, to be different from the world. And as a sign of their love for God, God's people were always willing to remove these things. Another example of this is found when God called his people to come out of Egypt. You remember they were in Egyptian captivity? And during the Exodus, when they came out of Egypt, God told the, the, the people of God, the Israelites, to take with them from Egypt, to take from Egypt the articles of silver and gold and clothing. God told them to carry these things out of Egypt. And the reason why they were to carry these adornments out of Egypt was for payment, not for adornment. God told them to take these out because of all the hard work that they had given to the Egyptians. And so these things were more like currency, not so much outward adornments. And friends, you'll find that on their way to the promised land when they exited Egypt, these things became a stumbling block and it actually led them into apostasy. With those ornaments of gold, they made a golden calf and they worshipped it apostatizing against the Lord. And so these things became a stumbling block. And friends, notice when God saw what was taking place, he then called for a reformation amongst his people Israel. In Exodus 33, verse 5 and 6, the Lord said to his people, Now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb, 
And if you look this up in the original Hebrew, it also adds the word onward. In other words, they continued to lay aside these things as they were heading to the promised land. And in the same way, friends, as we're heading to the heavenly promised land, we will be willing to lay aside things that are potential stumbling blocks to us in the wilderness of this world. You see, friends, this was a pagan practice, the wearing of these earrings and jewelry. They learned it by watching the Egyptians. And this practice led to idolatry and apostasy. And God called them to come out of Egypt, but he was also calling Egypt to come out of them. That is the Egyptian practices that they learned by beholding the Egyptians. God wanted them to be different, peculiar. And friends, this story in the Old Testament is an indication. It's a what? It's a hint or an indication of what God's will is for us in the last days. And here's the reason why. Because the Bible tells us that what happened back then is an example for us. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, the Bible says, Now these things became our what? Examples. And these things that it's referring to, if you read the chapter 10, it's referring to the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. Those things that happened to them in the wilderness are examples to the intent that we should not, what is God protecting us from? Lust after evil things as they also lusted. Again, God is trying to protect us from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so these Old Testament stories have, typed, uh, have uh, typological significance for the last days. Why? Because, friends, listen, Egypt is a symbol of the bondage of sin. God wants to take us out of Egypt out of the bondage of sin. The wilderness is a symbol of this world. God was wanting to lead them through the wilderness and lead them to the promised land, and the promised land is a symbol of heaven. Amen? And so right now, as Christians, the Lord has set us free from the bondage of Egypt, that is the bondage of sin. And right now, as we walk with the Lord, we are in the wilderness. This world is not my home. We are just passing through. Amen? This world is not our home. Our home is somewhere way up there beyond the blue, heavenly Canaan, the promised land. And so while we are right now in the wilderness of this world, God is wanting us to lay aside things that can cause us to stumble in our journey towards heaven because the enemy is trying to keep us out of the promised land. All of the forces of hell are trying to ensnare us in this wilderness. Satan, friends, has laid big traps as well as small traps along the way. And friends, superfluous adornments was one of those traps for ancient Israel. And so it is and will be for end-time Israel in the last days as well. And so thus, as we're in the wilderness, friends, God wants us to lay aside things that might cause us to stumble. Any potential hindrance that would make us desire Egypt. Notice in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, another principle. The Bible says, Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us do what? <clears throat> Lay aside two things. Notice, every weight and the sin which so easily does what? Ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Friends, right now we're in a, we're in a race. We're racing through the wilderness of the world trying to get to the finish line of the promised land. And friends, in order for us to endure to the end, we must lay aside two things. The sins that beset us. Those are the obvious, clear commands of God that we break. But not just the sin, also the weight 
And those are the little hints, the little indicators of things that could be a stumbling block for us. And I believe that superfluous adornments could, is, is a weight. It's something that may not be evil in and of itself because there's nothing inherently evil in gold or diamonds. God made these things. But if it's holding us down, if it's holding us back, then it's a weight. And God says we need to lay aside every sin and every weight that so easily can ensnare us. And the reason why, friends, is again, God loves us, and He's trying to protect us from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? So because of love, we're not just listening for the clear commands, but even the small indicators, the little hints that God gives to us, trying to find out what is pleasing to Him. Now, notice how the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life led to apostasy amongst the people of God. Here's another verse. In Hosea 2.13, Bible says concerning God's people that she decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she did what? She forgot me, says the Lord. Now, friends, it's obvious that not everyone who does this will forget God doesn't mean that if you put these things on, you're automatically going to forget God. But here's the thing. Human nature is such that our own hearts can lead us astray. Human nature is such that we tend to rationalize and compromise our own desires. And so many superfluous distractions can cause us to easily forget God and where true beauty lies. This is what happened to God's people of old. They forgot that He was the source of true beauty. And they got distracted by the superfluous and the superficial. In fact, notice in Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 9, talking about God's people who fell into apostasy because of pride. The Bible says that the look on their where? Countenance witnesses against them. They declare their sin is Sodom. They hide it not. So there was something on the countenance of God's people that was a witness against them. And what was that? Notice verses 18 through 21. God now gives a list on what was on the outward demeanor of his people. It says, in that day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, and the crescents, and the pendants, and the bracelets, and the veils, and the headdresses, and the leg ornaments, and the headbands, and the perfume boxes, and the, and the charms, and the rings, and the nose jewels. God gives a list of, of these things that were not necessary. These things that got, caused God's people to become distracted and became stumbling blocks and caused them to be proud and haughty in their own beauty. And then it says in verse 24, it shall come to pass that instead of a sweet smell, there shall be a what? A stench. And instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And burning instead of what? Instead of beauty. In other words, these outward adornments did not truly make them beautiful, but rather it brought a stench, a rent, baldness, and burning. Friends, what God's people were doing was this. They were trying to supplement the glory of God that was lost with the glory of gold and jewels and these ornaments. They were trying to cover up the emptiness and the insecurities within instead of allowing God to make the difference in their lives. And unfortunately, many of God's children fall into the same trap today, friends. I want us to remember that beauty isn't defined by what you look like. True beauty is defined by who you are and whose you are. Who you are, that's your character, what you are on the inside. And whose you are, that's who you belong to. And you belong to God. And that's where true beauty comes from. Can you say amen? 
God wants us to be beautiful, but notice how. In Psalms 149.4, it says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people, and he will beautify the what? Humble with what? What makes us truly beautiful in God's eyes? The humility of character and the gift of salvation that he gives to us. Only God can make us truly beautiful. You see, it's salvation on the inside is what makes us beautiful on the outside. And friends, when you think about it, in the beginning, God made mankind perfectly beautiful. Adam and Eve were perfectly beautiful. But it's interesting that God did not put any gold or jewels on mankind when he made them, did he? And yet they were still perfectly beautiful. Now, when God made them, he could have adorned them with gold and jewels and precious stones like he did Lucifer. You see, Lucifer, the Bible says every precious stone was his covering. And Lucifer forgot what true beauty was. He was proud of his own beauty, and as a result of pride, he was lifted up in himself. And as a result, he fell. God did not create man in that way. But instead, notice what God beautified man with. In Psalms 8, verse 5, it says, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with what? Glory and honor. You see, friends, when God made mankind perfectly beautiful, we were crowned not with gold and stones and medals, but we were crowned with the glory and the honor of God. Can you say amen? And then when you read Genesis chapter 2, you find that God threw the gold on the ground. God said that the gold was good, but he created the gold to beautify the earth, friends, not to beautify us. We were to be beautified by his character. Now, <clears throat> it isn't that God doesn't like jewels, friends. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing inherently evil in a metal or in a stone. It's not that God doesn't like them. God created them. And one day he's going to place a golden crown on our brow a crown full of glittering stars. And friends, there's nothing wrong with wearing it as long as God is the one that puts it on you. But friends, many people, instead of waiting for God to put it on us in heaven, we're trying to put it on ourselves. And that's the problem. You see, instead of waiting on God, we're wanting to adorn ourselves. But friends, when we wait upon the Lord, He's going to crown us like He did in the beginning with His glory and with His honor. And when we receive the character of God, the salvation of the Lord here in the wilderness of the world, and then when we get to the promised land, God will place that literal golden crown on our brow. Why? Because now it's safe for us to wear it. We can wear it in heaven. Why? Because in heaven there is no tempter to tempt. There's no stumbling blocks. We're in a safe environment. There's not going to be any problem with pride in heaven. But right now while we're in the wilderness... While there's so many traps and distractions and attractions, God is calling us to be careful and lay aside the weights that can easily beset us. Before we can wear the crown, we must first bear the cross. Can you say amen? And let self die. And friends, listen, that doesn't mean that we're going to look like bums. It means we're going to look like Jesus. And friends, it's interesting that Jesus, the most glorious, beautiful being in the universe, when he came into this world, he could have come wearing a crown of many crowns. He could have come decked out with all of these things. But when Jesus became flesh, when he came to the wilderness of this world, he wrapped his divinity in the garbs of humanity. And he was humble. He was perfect. He was beautiful. And he is our perfect example. And here's the balance, friends. Here's the balance. Jesus wore a seamless garment. A what kind of garment? 
Now, friends, that seamless garment was quality, but it wasn't extravagant. And that's the balance, friends. Nothing wrong with quality things, amen? But God is calling us to avoid the extravagant. Jesus was not blinging when he came to this world, and yet multitudes were drawn to his side. Why? Not because things that were hanging on the outside, but it was the beauty of his love and his character and his humility that drew people to his side. As Christians, he wants us to follow his example. And friends, I don't know about you, but I want to be like Jesus. Amen? That doesn't mean we look like bums. It means we look like Christ. Quality, but not extravagant. Simple and modest. Well, some of you might be asking after we got, we've been through all those verses, some of you might be asking, well, but what about the verses that, that, that speak positively about adornment in the Bible? There are some verses that speak positively about jewels and gold and certain things, but friends, I want you to carefully consider that every time you find those verses that speak positively about the wearing of adornments, it's always in either one of these three contexts, dealing with a functional purpose. For example, the vestments, the, 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 the precious stones and the vestments of the priest's garments, it had a practical function, as well as the signet ring of the king. It wasn't, uh, or ornamentate, uh, it wasn't an ornament. or In nature, it wasn't for ornamentation, but it had a practical function. Or, number two, you'll find it in an allegorical context. For example, Ezekiel 16, many people read Ezekiel 16 where God says to the, to the woman that was left in her blood that I will adorn you with certain things. Well, friends, that was an allegory. That was a parable. It represented the people of God. It wasn't meant to be taken literal. And so too with the prodigal son, when the father put the, the ring on the son's finger, that, that was a sign of, uh, uh, that he was reinstated into sonship. It wasn't uh, ornamentation in its nature. And then you'll find the third example is when we all get to heaven. When we all get to heaven, it's safe. God is the one that puts it on us. It's safe because we will, our characters are changed and transformed. But, but friends, outside of these contexts, the putting on of superfluous adornments would violate the biblical principle of modesty. And if that's clear, if that makes sense, would you please say Amen. Now, some may be wondering, what about the wedding band? I mean, the wedding band falls under the category of, of, of having a function. And, and for many people, that's true. Because today, the wedding band, the function is a sign of protection to let others know that you are taken and that you are married. But friends, you'll find it interesting that history reveals the origin of the wedding band as pagan in nature. I want to read this quote to you, and then I'll make a few comments after that. The development of Christian doctrine, history tells us, we are told by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred into it all the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own religion. And what were some of these ornaments? The use of temples, those dedicated to particular saints, incense, candles, holy water, processions, the ring in marriage, turning to the east, images at a later date, all are of pagan origin and sanctified by their adoption into the church. And so we find that in paganism, the, the ring in marriage was actually a symbol of the sun god, the circle of gold, a symbol of the sun god. And in pagan practices, it was a sign of ownership. Now, friends, listen, don't misunderstand. For most people, it doesn't have that meaning today. I understand that culture has changed. Today, the wedding band is used 
as a symbol of love and a sign of protection. But friends, I want you to consider that in our twisted world, the wedding ring is not a divorce-proof protection. Can somebody say amen to that? The greatest protection in your marriage is modesty in dress and demeanor. Can you say amen? You see, wearing a wedding band doesn't make you more married. Not wearing one doesn't make you less married. What makes you married is your love and commitment to your spouse. Can you say amen? And friends, as I studied, my conviction is that I don't need a band of gold, personally for me at least. I don't need a band of gold to tell others that I'm taken. I want my life to tell others that I am taken and I'm happily taken, overtaken by my wife. Can you say amen? <laughs> you see, friends, if you feel like you need it as a protection, then that's between you and your spouse and God. But friends, listen to this advice. We need to make sure that we have the wedding band of God's love surrounding our hearts. Can you say amen? That's what we need. And friends, when people ask me if I'm married, you know, as you, as you notice, I don't wear a wedding band. Many people wonder, are, are you married? When people ask me that, I don't respond by saying, yeah, I'm married. <laughs> no! I respond by saying, yes, I'm happily married. And when I'm in a country traveling somewhere, I usually have my wife with me. So she's not able to come all the time. But if she's not with me, I make it a, a point that somewhere in the conversation with someone, I mention and talk about her. So people know I'm happily taken. Amen? We need to let our life be the light and be the commitment. In our world today, the wedding band, no one respects it or hardly anyone respects it. It's no longer a safe protection in our day and age. But friends, if you feel like you need it, that's between you and your spouse and God. And so in that context, when a wedding band that has a function, you are free to follow your conscience as the Holy Spirit leads. And we need to make sure that we give one another room to grow and room to follow our personal convictions and not judge each other. Can you say amen? Now, what about tattoos? Well, we're on this topic. <laughs> Oh, is, it, is it okay to have a tattoo of Jesus on my back so that when I'm strutting down the beach, people can see and I can witness for Christ? What about one of those tribal uh, arm sleeves, you know, cultural things? What, what does the Bible say? Well, friends, if you have a tattoo tonight, uh, you don't have to feel embarrassed at all. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. It doesn't wash off. Um, <laughs> how much is too much? This is a little bit too much for sure. Now, friends, listen, the past is past. But notice what God says for the future. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, the Bible says that our body is the temple of the Spirit of God, friends. It says, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You see, our body doesn't belong to us for us to mark up and cut up however we want. Our body belongs to God, friends. It's the sacred temple of the Holy Spirit. And how would you feel if someone came into this temple, this church, and started graffitiing on the walls? Would that be acceptable? Of course not. And God does not want us to mark up his temple either. Friends, when you look at the temple of God in the Old Testament, there was no writing on the, wall, on the outside. In fact, there was no gold hanging on the outside of the temple. But you know where the gold was? On the inside. The wallpaper was gold. Every piece of furniture on the inside was gold. Friends, God doesn't mind gold, but where does he want it? 
on the inside. And do you know what gold represents? Whenever God says, I will, I will put on you ornaments of gold, that's that in the allegorical context. The gold represents faith in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Peter. Silver represents understanding. Rubies represent wisdom. That's what it means when God, in the allegorical context, says to the woman, I'm going to cover you with these things as a, bride adorns, as a bridegroom adorns the bride. That's what it means. It's not meant to be taken literal. It will be literal when Jesus returns. Some people say we're the temple, so we need to deck it out and color it up and put all kinds of things. But God wants the gold to be on the inside. I want the gold to be on the inside. How about you? Now, notice what it says in Leviticus chapter 19, 20, verse 28. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now, don't feel bad about the past. What's done is done. You can't wash it off, but here's something to live by in the future. Amen? We want to make God the Lord in this area of our lives. Now, friends, I want you to notice, while people ask this question about tattoos, in the same context, people say, well, if God doesn't want us to mark up our body, then what about makeup? Ooh. Ooh. Friends, if you're wearing makeup tonight, you don't have to be embarrassed unless you're a man. <laughs> In most cases, men should not wear makeup. But ladies, listen, don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. The Bible doesn't say much about it, but there are a few scriptures that I want to share with you tonight. Notice what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 30. What are you doing, O devastated one? What are you doing? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why shade your eyes with paint? You adorn yourself in vain. Ooh. God is asking us why. And friends, the reason why he said it's in vain, because ladies, listen, you're beautiful just the way God made you. God created your skin the color that he wanted it to be. Natural beauty is the very best beauty. I mean, think about it. Have you ever seen a baby born into this world with, with, with blue eyelids or, or, or red lips? Have you ever seen that? No, friends, it's not natural. It's not natural. But some people say, but I look so pale if I don't have anything on. I look so pale. Well, friends, all you have to do is put some cocoa butter on your skin and get out in the sun, and God will give you some natural light to your complexion. And if you want red lips, if you want red lips, bite them. They'll turn red. <laughs> and people say, but I feel so naked. You don't need something artificial. You need something spiritual. And Jesus is the one that covers us. And friends, listen, God's people, whenever they painted the face, they were copying the customs of the heathen. The first time the painting of the face is mentioned in the Bible, and, I, and, and in fact, I think even in history, it's talking about Jezebel. In 2 Kings 3, verse, or excuse me, 9, verse 30, she painted her face to lure the prophets of God into fornication and adultery, and we don't want to follow that example. Ladies, don't let the world tell you what beauty is. Let the Word of God tell you what beauty is, and you're beautiful the way that God has made you. But some ladies say, but if the barn needs to be painted, paint the barn. <laughs> and friends, that's true, okay? That's true. If the barn needs to be painted, go ahead and paint the barn, but Avoid the unnatural colors. That's the point. That's the principle. We're balancing this. Uh, if you need to put something on, use 
something that matches the natural complexion of your skin. Amen? And don't use the stuff that clogs up the pores. Use the natural stuff that, that I heard of makeup made of minerals so natural you can sleep in it, doesn't clog the pores. And you know, I don't know anything about that, but I'm sure you, you can find out. <laughs> listen, friends. Listen, friends. That's not saying that you can't put something on your face. Just avoid the extremes and be modest about it. Can you say amen? And most people I've seen are, 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 are modest about it. And that's the principle, modesty, avoiding the extremes. Now, friends, on my wedding day, that's an important day. And I love my wife. You know, before we got married, she never wore makeup before, and she was beautiful just the way she was, and I was attracted to her. The Jesus living inside of her, and she was beautiful on the inside and on the outside. But friends, on the day of the wedding, that's an important day. And she was pressured by her family to make up, to make up. And I told her beforehand, it's up to her, but for me, she didn't need to. I love that she's beautiful just the way she is, glowing with the glory of God. And on the wedding day, she chose to go all natural, and she was beautiful then, and she's still beautiful today. Amen? She was glowing with the glory of God. Ladies, you want to attract a brother that loves you, not so much for what you paint on, but for who you are. Not for what you look like, but for who you are in character. And here's the reason why. Here's one of the main reasons why you want a brother that loves you for who you are, not what you look like. And the reason why is because you're not going to look like that forever. <laughs> 20 years from now, things are going to change. Time and gravity can make a big difference. Isn't that right? And what happens is this. If the brother's just into you because of what you look like, young ladies... When another, another beautiful face walks by, he just might lose interest in you. And as a result, we have so much dysfunction and divorce and, and adultery, friends. You see, the foundation of the marriage must be the love of Christ and the inward character of the person. Love and not infatuation. Can you say amen? Natural beauty is the best, best beauty. We're almost done. In the Bible, there is an ornament that God calls us to put on. Notice what it is. 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plating the hair. That's when they braided the hair with all kind of gold and ch chains of gold and stuff. And of the wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in the which is not corruptible. Even the ornament, what ornament? Of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And that's the ornament he wants us to have. A meek and quiet spirit. That's what modesty is all about. God is saying, allow me to cover you with the ornament of my character. You see, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Amen? But friends, this verse is not saying that God does not care about the outward appearance. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said the other verses we just read. He does care about the outward appearance. The point of the passage is that God is more interested in beautifying the inside than the outside. God accepts us just as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. The heart is more important than the outward. And when God has the heart, he will have the outward appearance as well. Because remember, the mind is the root. The lifestyle is the fruit. So when God has the mind and the heart, he will have the outward appearance as well. Friends, if you were to see me 15 years ago before I found Christ, you would have run away. I looked crazy. 
I, was all, I always wore a hat hiding my face. You could barely see my face. I was always spying on people. My eyes were bloodshot red, had chains around my neck and rings around on my hands, and had these huge clothes with a big face of Bob Marley on the front, baggy pants, and I looked crazy. But friends, when I came to Jesus and gave him my heart, he began to change how it looked on the outside. And I don't dress like that anymore. I don't want to look like the world. I want to look like Jesus. I want to be modest. I want to reflect his love to others. Some people say, but it's just the small things. Is God really concerned with little things? Yes, he is, friends. Notice in Luke 16, 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in least is unjust also in much. Little things make a big difference. Anything we love God, love more than God, or won't surrender is dangerous. Little things show how much we love the Lord. And remember the attitude of the truly converted Christian? They're not going to say, Lord, what can I still hold on to and still go to heaven? But they're going to aim for perfect conformity to God's will. Their attitude will be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. They don't don't have to have clear commands. If they're in tune with the Spirit, those little hints in the Word is good enough to please the Lord Jesus. And so as we close tonight, let me ask the question that I started with. Do you love the Lord Jesus? If you love him, let me hear you say amen again. Is Jesus more important to you than the things of this world? Does he have your heart tonight? How many of you want to be a part of the end time Israelites that follow the lamb wherever he leads? You want to be that special, peculiar people, different and distinctive from the world? You want to receive the seal of God protecting the mind, the forehead that, 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 that will determine the lifestyle and the destiny. And you want God to be the Lord of every single aspect of your life, the Lord of what you watch, the Lord of what you listen to, the Lord of how you look. You want to reflect the glory of God. Jesus died for you. Will you live for him? Will you lay aside your pride, your personal preferences for him? Jesus is more important than a movie and a song, a dress, a chain, and a ring, and whatever it might be. Let us lay it aside because what are those things in comparison to eternity? I surrender all because Jesus surrendered all. How many want to surrender all to Jesus tonight? I told you it was somewhat of an uncomfortable message. Before we pray, let me just say this. Tonight's message is only for those who love the Lord. If you don't love the Lord Jesus, don't worry about what you heard tonight because if you try to do these things without love for God, your life is going to be miserable. It's going to be a bunch of legalistic requirements that won't amount to anything. We don't do these things because we're trying to prove something or earn something. We do these things because we love Him who first loved us. We want to guard our mind. We want to glorify our Lord. And so today, maybe your toes have been stepped on. Maybe the Word of God has cut you in some sensitive area of your life. Tonight, I want to invite you to lay it down at Jesus' feet and say, yes, Lord, I want to put you first in all things. Is that your prayer? Amen. If so, I want to invite you, if you're able to, to go to your knees with me as we pray and dismiss tonight. If you can't kneel, if your knees are weak, just kneel in your heart. But let's assume a posture of reverence to the King 
as we surrender our lives to Him. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your love. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross. Sweet Holy Spirit, thank you for leading us to a deeper understanding of truth in these practical areas. Lord, we realize that these principles are in your word because you love us and you're trying to protect our minds, protecting us from the pride of life, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Please forgive us for the times that we've looked upon these things as legalistic requirements. Help us to see them in the context of love. And I pray, dear Lord, that your love would reign in our hearts and that the love that accepts us just as we are, no matter what issues we have, no matter what we look like, we pray that that love would transform our lives on the inside and may that transformation be reflected even on the outside. Lord, help us to surrender these things that are not important anyway so that we might receive your righteousness, your beauty, your character. This is our prayer. In Jesus' blessed name, we pray. Let all of God's end-time Israelites say, Amen. Amen.